Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here in sunny Orlando, Florida at uh, Microsoft Ignite, and I've got the pleasure of being seated across from Jordan Edwards. Jordan is a principal program manager for the Azure Machine Learning Platform. Jordan, welcome to the Twinwell AI Podcast. Oh, thanks. So I'm really looking forward to talking with you about, uh, well, our subject for the day, MLOps and related topics. Uh, But before we do that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. It sounds like you got started off at Microsoft where a bunch of folks that are now working on ML and AI (laughs) got started in the Bing Group. Right. So uh, I started Microsoft a little over seven years ago. Uh, started off working on the big data platforms and related machine learning platforms, uh, then ended up working on uh, engineering systems for those platforms. Then we decided to take those engineering systems and um, you know apply them to machine learning as well. Hence, the internal machine learning platform was born. And as you mentioned, like a bunch of other folks who used to work on Bing, uh, we all got moved into, hey, let's take the cool stuff we built for Bing's internal engineering platform and bring it to uh, external customers on Azure. And so I've been in the Azure machine learning team uh, a little bit over a year now. Nice, nice. And your role here on the team? Yeah, so I'm the product area lead for what we call MLOps, uh, which is really all about how do you bring your machine learning workflows to production? A topic that we spend <laughs> a lot of time talking about here on the podcast, uh, as well as our, our recent TwimbleCon AI Platforms event. You know, maybe starting uh, kind of directly connecting to your background uh, I'm curious, the transition from uh, you know a team that largely came out of this internal product or project Bing uh, and is now trying to generalize those you know systems, but broader knowledge and learnings to right. uh, the market. Kind of, what are the uh, commonalities and differences, I guess, that sure. uh, you encounter in trying to do that? So there's actually a lot of commonalities when you double click on it. But the biggest thing is, you know, Bing and Office 365, uh, internal Microsoft teams have been doing AI and ML for a long time. Yeah. And so they built up a lot of habits and tools and technologies, but also a lot of things that don't necessarily map to how we see enterprises getting started, right? So there's the, you know, uh, most of our external customers today are coming in wanting to do Python-based development. And we have some of that internally, but we also have... You know, languages that predate the popularity of Python as a data science platform. So we have you know engineers doing uh, machine learning work in uh, .NET and C++. And so those workflows are a bit different. Also, a lot of the machine learning platforms at Microsoft, as you would imagine, were previously Windows-based, whereas uh, the new customers coming in want to do things using you know, Linux and containers. And uh, there are newer techniques that are being applied as well. So there's uh, similarities in their the ways they want to solve the problem, but just different tools that they're using and also uh, just different amounts of context that have been built up. There's also the matter of scale. Uh, So when you look at teams like like Bang, they've got a thousand data scientists that are collaborating together to train these huge models. Uh, Most of the enterprise customers that we're talking to, they have small teams scattered all over the place or they're trying to staff a team or they have a team and they're not sure how to make best use of their time. Uh, also, the most common uh, problem that we're seeing that they come to us with is, hey, 
we have all these data scientists who are doing work in Jupyter Notebooks, whatever the work is happening on their local machines. We have no idea where the code is, if the code's even checked in. And they're doing all this work, but we can't leverage any of it on the business side. There's so many, so many problems <laughs> yes. in that problem statement. <laughs> Correct. Right? There's a kind of a reproducibility mm -hmm. problem. There's a you know business value yep. path to production problem. There's kind of an accountability problem. Yep. Um, when you unpack that, what are all of the? How do you do you prioritize those? Like, so we try to put it in terms of like a process maturity model. Okay, and it's exactly how you framed it. There's the reproducibility of the work. So you know, another data scientist on the team could reproduce the same work that uh, one person did, and then an automated system could also reproduce that work. Which means you need clean modeling around the code and data and configuration that you're using in your model development process. Then there's the, how do you transition this uh, this model, this thing you've created to production? So how do you package it? How do you certify it? And how do you roll it out in a controlled fashion? And then how, at the end, uh, how do you determine the business value of your model? Is it making your business more effective? Uh, from a cost point of view, Like, is it worth the amount of compute hours you're spending and the amount of man hours you're spending training these models. And then, uh, you know, on the, the absolute end of the process maturity model is, okay, I've got this model, it's reproducible. I've got it deployed out. I'm using it for a production scenario. Uh, how do I know when I might need to retrain it? So completing the circle. And that's, that's always the question that, uh, you know, customers will come and start with is like, how do we do automated retraining? It's like, let's walk back and begin it. How do you reproduce these models in the first place? That that strikes me as a mature customer that's asking about automated retraining, right? Correct. Most people are trying to get the model into production in the first place, right? Or but, many, you know, they 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 see the marketing hype where they read all the things like, oh, look Got at this it. company doing cool automated retraining stuff. And realistically, it takes a long time to get to that degree of maturity where you can trust that you have the high quality data coming into your production systems to be able to analyze and compare and figure out, I do need to retrain. And even, you know, even in the case of like, of like Banger office um, ML development teams, there's never a fully automated retraining loop. It's always, there's uh, you know, a scorecard that gets generated and humans go and do some sort of review process prior to your new larger models going out, especially when they deal with things like how do you, you know, monetize ads, for instance. So there's a lot there to dig into, but before we do that, <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the questions that I had for you is you've got MLOps in your title. Yeah. What does that mean to you? <laughs> so uh, that means to me that it's all about how do you take the work that data scientists are doing and make mm -hmm. it make their lives easier, but also make it easier for others, other personas to come into the fold and take advantage of data science. So the three personas I like to talk about is you have your your data engineer who's got this giant lake of data. They want to figure out what value they can derive from it. You've got your data scientist who's tasked with, you know, finding interesting features in that data and training models on top. And then you've got this new emerging persona called the the ML engineer whose responsibility it is to take the work the data scientist is doing and bring it to production. And so my job is to help the ML engineer be able to be successful and help the ML engineer be able to uh, interact well with the data engineering and data science personas that are required to sort of complete that circle. And of course, you also have the, you know, the hub in the center of it, your, your IT ops persona who's 
giving them all of the raw compute and storage resources to to get started. So mm -hmm. Yeah, making sure everybody plays nicely together and yeah. actually connects things end to end. Yeah, and, and so there's kind of a, a an obvious kind of echo to DevOps. Right. To what ex extent is that? Is it inspirational? Is it kind of directly applicable, or is it you know, counter applicable, meaning just don't try to do exactly what you're doing in DevOps because that's the... So I think it's sort of all three of the things that you mentioned. <laughs> Shocking, right? Team me up. Um, so as far as how it's inspirational, definitely the practices that have been developed in the DevOps field over the past 20 years or so are useful. Yeah. Uh, however, data scientists are not software engineers and right. they're not even engineers. A lot of them are scientists. So. Right. Telling them they need to, you know, care about things related to the infrastructure and package version management, and dealing with, uh, you know, all all of the intricacies of how to run like a production infrastructure. That's just not something that they're interested in at all. Yeah. So, trying to force these habits onto them, we've seen this. You know, even trying to get them to, like, you know, write tests for their code. It it, it takes a lot of education on the net value add they're going to get from it uh, before they're willing to onboard. So. Definitely inspirational from a process point of view. A lot of the same tools are applicable, uh, but then you also need new tools that are domain specific too. You know, how do you do data versioning? How do you do model versioning? Uh, how do you validate and run integration testing on models? Uh, how do you uh, release and do A/B comparison on a model as opposed to a normal software application, and you know, know if it's better or not? So, yeah. Inspirational, uh, applicable, and you'll get you know hit in the face by a data scientist if you tell them to <laughs> go and implement all these things themselves. Yeah. It, one of the things you mentioned earlier was testing. You know, what's the role of testing in a in an MLOps uh, process, and how do you? What kind of experiences have you had? You know, working with real customers to implement. Uh, testing procedures that make sense for right. so um, the the place we try to start is by integrating some sort of tests on the data itself uh, so ensuring that your data is of the same schema you have high quality data like you know a columnized feature hasn't just been dropped or the mm -hmm. uh, the distribution of values in that feature haven't changed dramatically and so a lot of the stuff that we've um, built into the machine learning platform especially on like the data set profiling side, are designed to help you with that, to help you with skew testing and analyzing, is your data um, you know, too different to the point where you shouldn't need to be training it? Or is it your data too similar? Or is it is it in that sweet spot where the same training pipeline is actually applicable to go and solve the problem? Mm -hmm. That's on the profiling side. And then we also have some uh, advanced capabilities on the, the drift side. Uh, so analyzing the over time, how are the inputs or features into your model changing? Whether that's uh, training versus scoring, or you know, day over day, week over week, month over month of the data coming into your model when it's making predictions, um, does that data has the shape of that data changed over time? Do you still trust the model based on the input values? And then, of course, you have the the other end of it too, which is um, looking at the predictions the model is making. Whether it's from a business application, um, so say I'm you know using the Outlook app on my phone and I've got the smart reply model running there. Now either they didn't click on any of my suggestions, uh, they clicked on a different suggestion from the one I did, they clicked on the top suggestion that I had, or they said I didn't like any of these suggestions. Like 
all those types of feedback come into telling you like is the is the quality of data that you've trained your model on giving you a useful model on the prediction side mm-hmm. so yeah skew testing um, validating your data's quality correctness uh, consistency between training and inference it's sort of all those things okay okay but, yeah so I'm kind of pulling at threads here maybe yeah. taking a step back you talked a little bit about um, a maturity model that yeah. you, when you look at customers, they kind of fall in these different right. buckets. Um, it, is there a prerequisite for, you know, starting to think about ML ops? So I think the prerequisite is you have to have a desire to apply a model to a business need. If your only goal is to write a model to say, you know, publish a paper, I mean like, Hey, I have this model to solve this cool right. problem. Then, you don't really need any of the MLOps stuff. And if you're still, you know, if you're just mucking around in a Jupyter notebook, trying some different things by yourself, it's also a stretch to say like, oh, you need these MLOps practices now. But the second you go beyond, you know, I'm keeping all my notes in Jupyter or I'm dumping them into OneNote somewhere and just keeping track of all my experiments on my own, the second you want collaboration or reproducibility or the ability to scale up and scale out to run your jobs in the cloud, that's where... MLOps starts coming into play. I agree that kind of collaboration is a, a big driver, yeah. but even a, an individual researcher, you know, that's tracking hyperparameters and file names or yeah. on Post-it notes or right, something right, right. even worse can benefit from some elements of oh, definitely. the tooling that we kind of refer right. to as MLOps. Yeah. Right? Would you agree with that? I would, I would, yeah. Uh, but just, you know, trying to sell them on using everything from the very beginning is a tougher sell. So we start by saying, you know, Start by tracking your work. Mm, so it's mm-hmm. it's the whole process maturity flow is you start with work tracking, then Got making it. sure everything's in a reproducible pipeline, and then making sure that others can go and take advantage of that pipeline, and then you actually have the the model that you can go and use in other places. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which which um I, I I like the way you pulled that together because in a lot of ways, one of the questions that I've been kind of noodling around for a while now is the. You know, where does ML ops, you know, start and end relative to kind of platforms and tooling and the yep. things that enable and support ML ops? And it's, you know, very much uh, like the conversation we were having around DevOps, like DevOps isn't, you know, containers and right. Kubernetes and <laughs> things like that. Dev- DevOps is a set of practices. Yep. And it's very much, uh, uh, to your point, kind of, uh, you know, that end to end process. So right. you might need, you know, any one of a number of the tools that, someone might use to enable ML ops, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you need ML ops. Right. And that's, you know, when, sure, I work on Azure machine learning, when I'm talking to customers about, well, how does ML ops actually work? You're going to have at least like three different tools and technologies being used, right? Because you have three different personas. You have data engineering, data science, and DevOps, ML engineering, whatever, which means you're going to have some sort of uh, data pipelining tool uh, something like Data Factory or you know Airflow in the open source world, mm-hmm. something to help with managing your training pipelines, whether it's you know Azure ML as a managed service or uh, something like Kubeflow if you're in the open source community. And then same thing on the release management side, whether it's you're using Azure DevOps or GitHub Actions or you're running your own like Jenkins server. Either way, there's going to be at least those three different types of tools with different personas, and they all need to work together and interoperate. Uh, so that's another key part of our pitch is like make sure that you're being flexible in how you're producing and consuming events because ML ops is more than just 
model ops and you need to make sure it fits into your, right. your data and dev side of the house. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Uh, you mentioned uh, Azure DevOps playing a role in here and you know, Jenkins on the open source side. Yeah. You know, these are tools that, you know, from the DevOps perspective, you associate with CI, CD, continuous yeah. integration and continuous delivery. The idea being that there's a parallel on the model deployment side. Can you elaborate a little bit on how those tools are used? Uh, yeah. So the way we like to look at it from a DevOps point of view is we want to treat a model as a packaged artifact that can be deployed and used in a variety of places. Uh, so your model is sure you have like, you know, your, your pickle file or whatever, but you also have the execution context for, you know, I can instantiate this model into a class in Python, or I can embed it into like my Spark processing pipeline, or I can deploy it as an API and a container onto, you know, Kubernetes cluster, something like that. So it's all about how do you bring the model artifact in as another thing that can be used in your release management process flow? It does not have to be a pickle file. It could be. Uh, it could be anything. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's it's this is my you know serialized graph representation. Um, here's my code file, uh, my config that I'm feeding in. So it's a model is just like any other type of application. It just happens to come from some or have some sort of association to like a machine learning framework or to have come from some data, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually, you know, another important part of the, the ML ops story is what's the, what's the end to end lineage look like, right? So ideally you should be able to go from, I have this application that's using this model. Uh, here's the code and config that was used to train it. And here's the data set that this model came from, uh, especially when we're talking to customers in more of the highly regulated industries. So, mm-hmm. you know, healthcare, financial services, uh, say you have a model deployed that's determining if it's going to approve or reject somebody for a loan. You need to be very careful that you've maintained your full audit trail of exactly you know where that model came from in case somebody you know, decides to come in and ask further. Uh, this this also becomes more complicated the more of a black box that your model is. But mm-hmm. in general, uh, the goal of having all these different technologies uh, work together and interoperate is so that you can track sort of your correlation ID or correlation vector across your entire data and software and modeling landscape. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about that um, kind of end-to-end lineage, is that a, a feature? Like you use tool X, uh, use Azure ML and click right. a button and you have that? Or is it more than that and a set of you know disciplines that you have to follow as you're developing the model. So yeah, it's kind of the the latter leads to enablement of the former. Okay. So uh, <laughs> assuming that you use the... I think you, you're the all of the above guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you're teeing it up, right? So um, so yeah, when it comes to you know, using the tools the right way, it's like, sure, you could just you know have a random CSV file that you're running locally to train a model on. But mm-hmm. if you want to assert you have proper lineage of your end-to-end ML workflow, like that CSV file should be you know, uploaded into blob storage and, and locked down and accessed from there to guarantee that you can come back you know, a year later and reproduce where this model came from. Um, mm-hmm. Same thing on the, the code and packaging and the base container images that you're using when you're training the model. All that collateral needs to get needs to be kept around. And what does that allow you to do is so, you know, we have the um, inside of the machine learning service, a uh, internal uh, meta store that keeps track of all the different entities and the the edges that connect them together. And uh, right now we have sort of a, a one hop 
exposure of that. But one of the things we're working on is more of a comprehensive way to, to peruse the graph. So it's like, hey, across my enterprise, show me every single model that's been trained using this data set, not scoped to, you know, a single, um, a single Azure or a single project that my team is doing, but across the entire canvas, show me everybody using this data set. Uh, what types of features are they extracting from it? Um, is somebody doing work that's similar to mine? Can I just fork their training pipeline and build on top of it? And, you know, going back to how has this work we've done for, um, internal teams inspired the work we're doing on Azure? Uh, that's, probably the most powerful part of our platform for internal Microsoft teams is the discovery, the collaboration, the sharing. Mm -hmm. That's what allows you to do you know, ML at high scale at high velocity. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure as much as we can that the, the tools and technologies that we have on Azure provide that same capability uh, with all of the enterprise ready features that you would come to expect from Microsoft and Azure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so in that scenario, you outlined the, Starting place is a data set that's uploaded to blob storage. Uh, even with that starting place, you've kind of disconnected your ability to do lineage from the kind of the source data set, which may be in a data warehouse or something sure. like that. Yeah. Um, is there also uh, the ability to kind of point back to those oh, original yeah. so, sources. So, you know, sometimes you'll have a CSV there, but you can also connect to a SQL database or to your raw data lake and have a tracking of, okay, this is the raw data. Here's, say, the data factory job that did all these transformations. Here's my curated data set. Here's all the derivations of that data set. Here's the one I ended up using for training this model. Uh, here's... I took this model and, you know, transfer learned on top of it to produce this new model. And then mm -hmm. I deployed this model as this API and you can trace things all the way back to there. And then going the other way, you know, when this model is now running, uh, I can be collecting the inputs coming into my model and the predictions my model is making. I log those into Azure Monitor and then my data engineer can you know, set up a simple job to take that data coming in and put it back into the lake or put it back into a curated data set that my data scientists can now go and experiment on and say, well, you know, how is my, how's the data coming into my model that's deployed compared to the, when I trained it? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's completing the circle back to the beginning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Nice. Um, which uh, conceivably uh, you could, as opposed to talking about a, a data set, which what, you know, this data set has produced what models you could point to a particular, you know, row in a, data warehouse or Correct. something like that, or a right. value and say, you know, what's been impacted by this particular data point. Exactly. And that's, that's, you know, the value that we're trying to get out of the, the new generation of Azure data lake store. And some of the work we're doing on the Azure data catalog side is to give you exposure into like, what's all the cool stuff that's being done or not being done with this data. Mm -hmm. It goes back to letting your uh, decision makers know, am I accruing business value from these, you know, these ETL pipelines that I'm spinning all these compute dollars to go and cook these curated data sets in. Mm -hmm. And that's a large part of uh, what our the larger um, ML platform team did before as well, was we helped with creating curated data sets for, for Bing and Office to go and build models on top of. So we, you know, had a, <laughs> we had the data engineering pipelines and the machine learning pipelines and the release management pipelines all like in under the same umbrella, which helped to inform the way we're designing the system now to be designed to meet enterprises where they are and help them scale up and out as they go. Yeah. I'm curious what are some of the 
key things that you're learning from customers kind of on the ground yeah. uh, who are working to implement this this type of stuff? Kind of how would you characterize you know, where folks are, if you can generalize and, yeah, so you know, for, what are the key <laughs> stumbling blocks, that kind of thing. So there, if we're to think about it in terms of like four phases where phase one is kicking the tires, phase two is models reproducible, phase three is models deployed and being used, and phase four is I have all the magical automated retraining wizardry. Yeah. They're mostly between phase one and phase two right now. Uh-huh. Like very few of them have actually gotten a model deployed into the wild. If they have it deployed, it's only deployed as like a dev test API. They don't trust it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, one learning is customers were a lot earlier in the journey than we've been expecting coming from doing this for internal Microsoft Teams. Right. Uh, another one is that the uh, for the customers we're talking to, their internal organizations are not always structured to let them innovate most effectively. Mm, elaborate on that. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, so they'll have part of their org, you know, their their data team and their IT department and their research teams are totally disconnected, disjointed, don't communicate to each other, don't understand each other. And so IT just sees what the researchers are doing and says, there's no way you're doing any of this in production. The data engineers are unsure what data the data scientists are are using. Like they might data scientists might be off running SQL queries in the side, but they have no idea from which tables the tables will disappear under the data scientist. So we're just, instead of doing a pure, like, okay, here's how to use the platform. It's more, hey, let's get all the right people in the room together from IT and research and your data platform and your, you know, software development platforms and start a conversation and build up the the domain expertise and the relationships on the people side mm-hmm. before you get started with the process or the platform. That's been, yeah, one big learning is too. Yeah. step back and focus on getting the right people involved first and then they can figure out the process that's going to work well for their business and then they can adopt the platform tools that we've been building to help them be more efficient at doing end-to-end ml are you finding that there's a, a pattern in organization that allows organizations to move more quickly like you know centralized versus decentralized or quote-unquote center of excellence or you know embedded into business units that is there one um, or the other that of those so that it, works it, best i think what we've seen work best is to have and an, an, have one business unit sort of act as the incubator to vet the end-to-end flow and actually get a model working in production but then have the overall you know, center of excellence, uh, centralized team observe what they're doing and take notes and let, let them flesh out what the canonical reference um, MLOps architecture pipeline should look like. Mm-hmm. So that's I think that's out of all the patterns, we've seen a lot of patterns being applied. Yeah. That one seems to be the best so far, though, is let, let a small team give them some flexibility to go and you know build a model take it to production with some light guardrails and they can build out the reference architecture the you know git repository and ci cd pipeline templates that the rest of the teams and the company can use and is the salient point there that the end business unit that has the problem owns the deployment of the model as opposed to the centralized but somewhat disconnected uh data science or ai coe yes Okay. So it needs in your 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 DevOps team for your business unit needs to know and understand the fact that a model is going to be entering their ecosystem and needs to be able to manage it with the same tools they manage their other 
application releases with, hence the integration with you know, Azure DevOps to make sure that all your pipelines are tracked and managed in one place. And there's not this one rogue release pipeline that's coming in and causing issues and havoc with the rest of your production system. Yeah. And, and generally, when you look at these production pipelines, do the did the pipelines kind of and the tooling resonate with the DevOps teams, or are they like this strange beast that they takes a long time for them to so wrap they, their heads yeah, around? They, they they freak out until they see the Azure DevOps integration, then they're like, "Oh, okay, I, I understand <laughs> this." Yeah. <laughs> Hence, where I'm like, you need to have the you know tools that your audience can understand. So yeah. The, you show them a Jupyter notebook, they'll jump out of their seats and run away scared. Uh, whereas you show them like, oh, right. here's a managed multi-phase release pipeline with like cleanly defined declarative YAML for the different steps. Like that, that resonates well with them. Whereas data scientists, you show them a big complex approval flow and they're going to be like, I'm never using any of this. You show them a Jupyter notebook, they're happy. Or, you know, an IDE with like low friction Python. And then your data engineers, again, you show them a, you know, confusing notebook process flow. They're not going to like that as much, but you show them a clean like ETL where they can drag and drop and run their SQL queries and understand are their pipelines running in a stable fashion? Like that resonates with them. So yeah, it's, yeah, different personas, different tools. They need to work together and figure out what process is going to work for their business needs. As I've kind of looked at primarily this machine learning engineer role yeah. that has been emerging over the past few years, yeah. and, and now we're talking about the DevOps engineer is like a separate thing, but the line is kind it's of a gray and moving yeah. and blurred line, so what, right? what we've seen in terms of, uh, we have customers ask us, well, how do we hire these ML engineers? Yeah. It's like, basically, you need a person who understands DevOps, but also can talk to your data scientists right. or can... <laughs> can figure out the work they're doing, help them get their work into a reproducible pipeline on the training side, and help with deploying the model and integrating it into the rest of your, your application lifecycle management tools. So yeah, your ML en- engineer needs to be a DevOps person with some understanding of ML. And is a DevOps person necessarily a software engineer that is coding a model uh, based not, on... Not necessarily. They just need to be really good at operational excellence so do they understand how to you know how to write things declaratively how to set up process control flows so that things work nicely end to end like mm-hmm. you don't need to understand the ml the data scientist is doing you need to understand the process they're going through to produce that model so so they have a bunch of code in a jupyter notebook like help them factor it into you know modules that you can stitch together but you don't need to understand like you know the machine learning framework that they're using specifically in that context, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, you've mentioned Jupyter notebooks uh, a few times. You know, one of the things that I see that folks are trying to figure out is like, should we do ML in notebooks or should right. we do ML in IDEs? Microsoft, you know, has a huge investment in IDEs, uh, but you've also been um, like in Visual Studio Code, making it more kind of interactive, integrated, kind of real time to incorporate some of the notebook-esque style right. of so interaction. We want it to be fluid to go from one or the other. We've seen the value in the uh, the interactive canvases for doing you know, uh, rapid-fire experimentation. We also talked to large companies like Netflix to learn how they use notebooks in automation at scale. Mm-hmm. And Their some paper of the, mill project, for example. Exactly. So we've actually integrated paper mill into our platform as well. So you can... Okay. If you're designing your training pipeline, you can stitch together a mix of scripts and notebooks and you know data processing steps together. And we, we try mm-hmm. to be as fluid as we can 
Um, and we're working with uh, the developer division as well to figure out how to more cleanly integrate notebooks into our IDE experiences. And you saw some of that in the VS Code side, and there's more stuff coming to help with that. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about kind of this automated retraining uh, aspect of managing model life cycles. Are there other aspects of managing li- model life cycles that you find important for folks to think about? So yeah, knowing when to retrain the model is one thing. Knowing when to deprecate the model is another thing too. So you know, say that the data the model is trained with is stale or can't be used anymore, or, you know, got removed for GDPR reasons. This is why having the whole lineage graph is so important to be able mm-hmm. to figure out exactly what data was used to train the model. Uh, other things around model lifecycle management, uh, yeah, really know know who's using it. Uh, know where the model's running, know if the model's adding business value, uh, know if the data coming into the model has changed a lot since you trained it, know if the model is dealing with some type of seasonal data and needs to be retrained on you know, a seasonal basis there. And then also uh, know the the resource requirements for your model. So another big thing we see trip a lot of our customers up is they've they train them. They train the model on these big, beefy VMs with massive GPUs, and right. they go to deploy. It and it's like, hey, my model's crashing. What do I do? Right. Uh, and so we've tried to build tooling in to help with that as well. So uh, you know, profiling your model, running sample queries into it, uh, different sizes of sample queries too, not always the same thing, and making sure you know, does your model have enough CPU and memory and the right size, you know, GPU to perform effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're also doing some work, you know, on the Onyx framework to help with uh, taking those models and uh, quantizing them or optimizing them to, for a specific business use case on the hardware side, which is really uh, slowly coming in. Especially we have customers in the manufacturing sector who want to run models quickly on the edge on small hardware. So it's like, how do you mm-hmm. how do you manage that transition from this model I train on this beefy machine to this model running on this tiny device? Uh, are you finding that um, that most customers are deploying models or even thinking about an individual? I've got this, you know, this model that I've created, and I'm going to think about the way I deploy this model versus I've got a model, I built it to a standard, it's just like any other model, and I'm going to just going to throw it into my model deployment thing. Like, are they there yet? Some of them are there. Uh huh. Um, the ones that have been doing this for a while longer and develop like their template for their model deployment flow. Right. Uh, like we try to provide as much tooling as we can, you know, in the platform and in the registry for you to track all the relevant things about it. Uh, but really just getting, getting the model deployed into your existing app ecosystem, making sure that you have the ability to do uh, controlled rollout and AB testing. Cause you don't want to just always pave over the previous model. Mm-hmm. So that's the most advanced customers are just getting to that point now where they're, ready to start doing A-B testing and looking for our help to go and do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So A-B, uh, along the lines of testing, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, there's both kind of the, you know, online testing of your models, right. freshness, um, but then also all kinds of um, deployment scenarios that have been right. developed in the context <laughs> of DevOps, yep. like canaries yep. and red, green, blue kind of stuff. Like all the colors, yeah, yeah, all the colors, right? So, are you, do you see all of that stuff out in the wild? Uh, yes. Uh, the the main difference we've seen with models compared to normal software being rolled out mm-hmm. is oftentimes they'll develop a model and test it offline in batch 
for a while before using it. So mm -hmm. they won't need to necessarily deploy it to receive real traffic right away. They'll let the model, you know, they'll get the new model. They'll wait a week, run the model and batch against the past week's worth of data and mm -hmm. then compare how different it is to it. So it's just the fact that you can test the model offline as opposed to having to do everything in an online fashion. Yeah. 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 That, that's probably the biggest delta, but otherwise we see all the same patterns as with normal software. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, because you, you're testing two things, right? You're testing right. the model's statistical ability to predict something, but then it's also software. Right. And you don't necessarily <laughs> want to put a, soft, a broken piece of software out there. Correct. That, uh, Especially because it's, it's a software with uncertain behavior. Right. Or more, more uncertain behavior than any normal software application you throw out there. Yeah. Yeah, what can we look forward to in this space from your perspective? Uh, so as far as things to look forward to, uh, there's lots of investments coming in improving our story around enterprise readiness, uh, making it easier for customers to do you know, secure data science and ML workloads, uh, work to help improve collaboration and sharing across the enterprise. Uh, you know, How do I figure out uh, which other teams have been doing modeling work similar to mine? How do I take advantage of that? So accelerating collaboration, velocity, uh, more work on the enterprise readiness front, and then a tighter knit integration with the rest of the big data platform stuff. So you know, integration with data lake, data catalog, data factory, mm. uh, DevOps, GitHub, and just, it's all about, yeah, helping customers get to production ML faster. Well, Jordan, thanks so much for chatting with me. Great, thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.